Xtox connects professionals in the life science, medical device, and food industries with useful content like webinars, job openings, articles, and virtual meetings to help you succeed in your career. This Life Science Focus podcast brings together some of our editorial staff to share insights into the latest B2B industry news to keep you up to date. This week on the show, we're discussing Johnson & Johnson's $8.9 billion talc lawsuit and tougher EPA restrictions on ethylene oxide emissions. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Xtalks Life Science Podcast. I'm Aisha Rashid, Senior Life Science Journalist at Xtalks.com, and this week I'm joined by Sydney Perlmutter, Vera Kovacevic, and Sarah Hand. Thanks for coming today. Let's start off today's episode with a story about how the EPA wants uh, more stringent restrictions on ethylene oxide emissions from sterilization facilities. So the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, or the EPA, has proposed tougher restrictions on ethylene oxide emissions from commercial facilities that sterilize medical equipment as well as spices. So ethylene oxide is a chemical that's uh, used in the sterilization, as I mentioned, of medical devices and also things like spices. And ethylene oxide itself is a colorless, odorless gas, which is highly flammable under low temperatures. Now, the problem with it is that it's also known to be carcinogenic. So long-term exposure has been linked to an increased risk of cancers, including breast cancer, myeloma, lymphocytic leukemia, and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So the EPA said that if the new proposed rules do go through, it's estimated that they could reduce ethylene oxide emissions from sterilization facilities by 80% every year. And that would bring levels below the AP sorry, the EPA's Clean Air Act standard for elevated cancer risk. And so the EPA said the rules would also involve more protective standards to control emissions under the law from a legal um, standpoint as well. And the agency says that the measures are a comprehensive approach to increase the protection of communities that live near sterilization facilities in particular, as well as workers at the plants. Now, last week, uh, or the week before the EPA announced these new proposed rules for sterilization facilities, uh, the agency also issued a set of proposed rules uh, for emission levels at facilities that manufacture ethylene oxide. So, therefore, the rules aimed at um, the sterilization facilities themselves uh, are really to align controls on both producers and users of ethylene oxide. The EPA also said that the proposal advances President Biden's commitment to ending cancer as part of the Cancer Moonshot Program. And so it says it supports the federal commitment to securing environmental justice and protecting public health as well, again, for communities that are most exposed to toxic chemicals. Now, a bit more about ethylene oxide. So it's currently the only alternative to sterilize medical devices that can't be exposed to steam. And according to a report in STAT, it's used to sterilize 20 billion medical devices in the U.S. per year. And this includes things like uh, pacemakers, catheters, and ventilators. 
Now, while most environmental groups um, have been welcoming and have commended the proposed restrictions, some say that they're not quite enough to protect uh, vulnerable communities where residents are often low income and disproportionately people of color. And so, um, you know, some have been saying that these regulations are long overdue, but then again, um, they're not quite enough and that the EPA should throw a wider net, according to uh, one spokesperson from the Union of Concerned Scientists. And um, and so they were saying that this should cover a larger range of facilities to include also things like offsite warehouses that often store recently sterilized equipment um, that continue to release ethylene oxide but aren't regulated for their air emissions. Uh, the EPA said that its proposal is driven by the latest science on the health risks of exposure to ethylene oxide emissions. And so while the agency said that it hasn't found routine exposure to ethylene oxide from commercial facilities um, to cause any short-term or acute health risks, there is increased risk with continuous or long-term exposure. So in proposing the new rules, the EPA said that it had also conducted a new analysis, which found that workplace exposure to ethylene oxide increased the risk of cancer. So they found that workers at sterilization facilities that were continuously exposed to the chemical over 35 years of regular work, which is uh, eight hours a day, 240 days a year, had a risk between 1 in 36 and 1 in 10. And the risk is between 1 in 25 and 1 in 12 for workers who apply the gas in healthcare facilities. And the risks from occupational exposure can be reduced by measures that include the use of personal protective equipment, good ventilation, and safety measures to prevent direct contact with ethylene oxide. And then at the community level, in 2018, the EPA conducted um, an analysis, and in that report, they found that communities that live near facilities that manufacture or use ethylene oxide face an elevated risk of cancer because of trace amounts of the gas that is released into the air from them. And um, so this was one of the first health uh, assessments, community health assessments, uh, that was conducted, and uh, it was... You know, these results were found after a 20-year-long review of ethylene oxide toxicity by scientists in EPA's Integrated Risk Information System program. So just before announcing the new proposed rules for ethylene oxide emissions, the EPA had also proposed updates to the Hazardous Organic National Emissions Standards for Hazardous Air Pollutants. Um, And so this includes a bunch of different pollutants, and that also includes ethylene oxide. And so those proposed updates included more stringent regulations that include fence line monitoring for pollutants from chemical emitting plants. And as part of that, it also conducted a community risk assessment, and that found that the new rules would lead to a 96% Uh, reduction in the people who have an elevated air toxics related risk of cancer living within six miles of a plant. And uh, so under the new rules for ethylene oxide emissions in particular, uh, or specifically that we were talking about, um, the emissions are capped at 10 parts per billion. So if concentrations exceed that, uh, personnel at facilities using ethylene oxide will have to wear personal protective equipment. Uh, The rules also reduce the amount of ethylene oxide that can be used for each sterilization cycle, and that's limited to no more than 500 milligrams per liter of air. 
and also the use of ethylene oxide will not be allowed in cases where there are other alternatives such as for the sterilization of musical instruments some cosmetics beekeeping and objects in museums and archival settings um and so on the other hand though uh, medical device manufacturers are raising some concerns and so um, the CEO of uh, AdvaMed, which is the Advanced Medical Technology Association, uh, Scott Whitaker, said that many medical devices simply cannot be sterilized by another method and that also um, the EPA has given these facilities 18 months to um, comply with the new rules. And he said that, that that time period is much too short for device companies to fully comply with the new regulations. Um, he said that med tech companies want to continue serving patients without interruption, and he hopes that the EPA will take their comments into account as well. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on these new regulations from the EPA on capping or, um, you know, placing stricter uh, limits on ethylene oxide emissions. And did you know the uh, sort of um, implications of ethylene oxide emissions and how um, it is a known carcinogen and how it is uh, quite a concern um, within this this area of medical sterilization. Well, lots of lots of chemicals are um, carcinogens, but it's it's alarming that it's released into the air and it affects like the local communities and. Um, that's why they definitely need to do something about that because that's just, you know, unacceptable. And like, this is a country like America, which is like a first world country, you know, well, this I don't is know not. About sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, it's, you know, it's, it's unacceptable in the 21st century to mm -hmm. be causing harm to people who are just happen to live there, you know, and air pollution yeah. is, a, is a big issue. But this is something that I think needs to be. Um, fixed as soon as possible so I can understand the EPA's push for like 18 months. Mm -hmm. um, I think they gave, the EPA gave that 18 month deadline kind of assuming that, you know, perhaps there will be a pushback and it may take longer. Um, but at the same time, I know that the FDA launched this innovation challenge uh, a few years ago where they were accepting proposals on al alternative methods to sterilize medical devices and mm. They selected four companies that like specialize in like innovative ways to sterilize medical devices, and um, they are now um, still in the process, I believe, of like evaluating those ways. But yeah, so this is something that the FDA is also working on to help like um, find alternatives, right? Because it, it is a problem. So for those alternatives. Um, there were four ways. They're very like, uh, for example, one way is using nitrogen dioxide as a sterilizing agent at like really low temperatures. Um, using, for example, vaporized hydrogen peroxide. Mm. So they are trying to assess new ways, which I think is great that the FDA is doing that. Um, but we don't know yet if all medical devices could be sterilized with an alternative yeah, that's way. But I, I think like pushing that number to a lot less than 50% of devices that use ethylene oxide would be a great help. Mm -hmm. And just, um, you know, when you were mentioning, Vera, the different alternatives and how the FDA is trying to look uh, or 
evaluating newer ways. There's a great piece that Sarah wrote a couple of years ago about um, different medical device sterilization methods. And so ethylene oxide is, you know, was up there. And of course, steam sterilization, dry heat, uh, and radiation sterilization are some of the other more traditional means and methods. But that's great to hear about some of those newer methods, Vera. Um, I mean, I wasn't aware of some of those myself, but definitely I think there's innovation needed in this area um, in order to contend with you know, these kinds of potentially dangerous and harmful chemicals like ethylene oxide. Yeah, you know, um, I'm glad you brought up that article, Aisha, because I was just sort of looking through those options there and, and saw that maybe radiation sterilization could be an option for some of these um, yeah. devices, particularly single-use devices like catheters and, and syringes mm. um, that would normally be uh, sterilized through ethylene oxide gas. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious to know, did the EPA actually suggest any alternative means of sterilization or are they just kind of like leaving it in the in the hands of the medical device producers to to find something to um, at least partially replace their use of ethylene oxide yeah i don't think these uh, restrictions are to totally eliminate its use Mm -hmm. because it's understood that you know it is an important um, sterilization method or an important gas that's used in that kind of sterilization. So it's just capping the amount. You know, mm. they're asking them, could you use less of it in one sterilization cycle? So they've tried to cap that. Mm. And then to really regulate the emissions as um, as well, of course. So I think, um, you know, some manufacturers were saying, well, you know, we're regulating it through the vents or the exhaust vents that go out the back vents I think they're called but then you know people are like well that's not enough there there are other ways that you can also control and the emissions that are leaking out into the air so I think yeah I think it's um, more about you know yes you're you're working with ethylene oxide we're we're not saying that we're going to ban it but um, you really need to take a look at your emissions and um, yeah, I think they're the fact that like they, they're capping it and there are there do seem to be ways where manufacturers and sterilizers can probably do better in terms of its release into into the environment. So, yeah, you know, I didn't um, I knew it was toxic, kind of like what, yeah. what you said, Vera, but I didn't know it was an issue um, for those people you know, living or, or breathing yeah. the same air around yeah. the plant. I assumed it was just, yeah, kind of like a workplace hazard, in which case, you know, I know they, they wear various PPE and, and hopefully that's effective, but, um, you know, when they're working with ethylene oxide, but I didn't realize this was something that would just be released as an emission. I guess I thought, you know, maybe there's some way that they um, – treat the the Mm. emissions you know before they're released uh so i think yeah certainly something needs to be done in that in that case if they've identified that you know hey these people living close to to this plant um are are uh developing you know cancer at a, a higher rate um but it does i i get where the medical device community is coming from as well in terms of you know what what do they do now and and makes sense to me why they would have a little bit of pushback um, but I wonder if it also comes down to, um, you know, I wonder why they would be using, let's say, like more ethylene gas, uh, or ethylene oxide gas, I should say, than they needed to in a single sterilization cycle. Like if they're able mm-hmm. to cut it down, seems like that would also 
amount to like a cost savings, let's say. Yeah, you I, would think, yeah. Yeah, I wonder if there's like a threshold there in terms of, you know, we need to use this much in order to ensure that the devices are fully mm. sterilized. I mean, I hope we don't see any issues with um, if they're slowly moving over to other sterilization methods. Uh, in some cases, I hope there's no issues with, you know, contaminated devices down the line. Oh, no, yeah, that would be... <laughs> but I, I also agree, this feels um, kind of in the same vein as uh, animal testing in that I know you mentioned some other um, industries outside of the medical device industry that use ethylene oxide. Like I think you said cosmetics and, and instruments or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I had no I idea just, about yeah. that. Musical and instruments, so yeah. In that case, spices I feel like... Spices is a big one, yeah, apparently. And, and spices, okay. So that's, that's like a, a food, one. you know, there's like a higher risk yeah. there. But the other ones seem like a little less risky than a medical device. You know, that's, yeah. that's mm-hmm. going to be like used on a patient or potentially implanted in a patient's body. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's not a huge deal. So that's deal. why they're like, like you know, and, yeah, and also they're not as susceptible to damage from like other methods of sterilization. Mm-hmm. So they're like, okay, you know what? Since there are other alternatives yeah. for those, like you're not, they're they're you know saying that that should be prohibited. Right. The use of ethylene oxide for makes me wonder if maybe that. ethylene oxide is a, like a cheaper option as well. I was well. just like thinking the, that too when yeah. you mentioned something about cost. I, yeah. I wonder. Yeah. I bet that, like that maybe it's it's um, widely used because it's less expensive. Mm. I don't know for sure, possible, um, but also yeah. because it's so applicable to a number of different devices. In which case, if there are alternatives that can be used on particular yeah, devices, that is even though they're a bit more um, maybe expensive to implement, then uh, that seems like fine to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what this reminds me of? A um, couple years ago, I watched a documentary about um, a, a Teflon. It actually like oh, had a yes. really devastating effect on the community that surrounded, you know, mm-hmm. the factory where like pans, pots and pans made with Teflon were being manufactured. Um, and I, you know, it, it's so devastating like to see the effects of it. Yeah. And, and it, it's it's a very like, we in this case is a very weird um sort of it, it feels contradictory almost because it's something that's used to sanitize but then it's also such a dangerous or it yeah, can have such toxic. dangerous effects yeah. so it's it, it's 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 odd to hear about um but yeah it really reminded me of, of what happened with teflon and and it's you know it, it takes years or sometimes decades for these sort of trends to be figured out or discovered um so you know i'm, I'm glad though this is coming to light Mm-hmm. Definitely. That's like a great kind of comparator. And also like you were talking about Teflon. This also reminded me of like in the food industry also, I think something about, um, you know, communities living near uh, meat producers. And I think um, releasing like byproducts of like animal, like husbandry and stuff like that like releasing emissions into the air and something about that as well so there are so many like and we hear about it all the time like factories and are set where factories are set up and then the communities around them are often like low-income communities and it's it's uh so that just really plays into the whole like environmental justice and and all of that so many issues surrounding it so Yeah, just a, a lot to uh, weigh in on there. But yeah, great, great discussion on that. 
All right, let's move on to our next story. And this is about, it seems like, Johnson & Johnson's never-ending legal saga around its baby powder. And so recently, Johnson & Johnson has put on the table a new offer to settle its tens of thousands of claims that allege the company's iconic tal- uh, talc-based baby powder contains carcinogenic asbestos. And so this new offer is worth a whopping $8.9 billion. And Johnson & Johnson said that it's going to um, distribute this over 25 years, again, to settle all of these um, cases that it has been facing for a long time now. <laughs> So Johnson & Johnson has been embroiled in its infamous baby powder lawsuits since around 2009. Now, uh, Johnson & Johnson recently also lost a bankruptcy bid, um, and uh, it's come under fire for for that. So what it has been trying to do is to leverage the so-called Texas two-step bankruptcy strategy, through which it sets up a special purpose subsidiary, and it's... uh, this one is called LTL Management, and what it would do is transfer all the uh, talc lawsuits to it, and then the LTL Management subsidiary would file for bankruptcy. So this is being seen as, you know, a very kind of um, unethical, gimmicky loophole, which Johnson & Johnson is using to try to get out of or to try to protect its assets, uh, its primary company assets um, from, you know, the payouts that it's eventually going to make uh, for a lot of these lawsuits. And so its recent offer of $8.9 billion may seem generous, but according to some, because of what Johnson & Johnson is doing, um, you know, by abusing the bankruptcy process and also... um, People are saying that this amount is not even enough in the first place. So in particular, a plaintiff's steering committee, which consists of 14 members and it's co-chaired by representatives from Beasley, Allen and Ashcraft and Gerald Law Firms, issued a release after Johnson & Johnson put forth its latest offer, saying that it rejects Johnson & Johnson's second attempt at what they allege is abuse of the bankruptcy process. Um, and also, like I mentioned, they were saying that this amount is not even enough to begin with. Um, so Johnson & Johnson's bankruptcy plan was rejected by a U.S. Court of Appeals earlier this month. Now, as part of its latest settlement offer, Johnson & Johnson said that its subsidiary has refiled for bankruptcy. So they're still going to keep going ahead and, you know, leveraging this uh, bankruptcy process that... Uh, would help them deal with all of these uh, with this these big payouts that it's bracing itself for. Um, now, on the other hand, there is a group of seventeen law firms and a group called Talc Powder uh, Justice, which actually announced their support of the settlement. Settlement, and together the firms represent about seventy thousand uh, plaintiffs. Um, but then a lawyer from Beasley Allen, who chairs, co-chairs the plaintiff steering committee that criticized the, the latest offer, said that most of the firms in that group, the other group the, of the 17 law firms, 
um, they've gotten into the litigation very either very late or um, they've not been in the leadership working up these cases and don't really have an understanding of what clients have gone through. So since about 2009, Johnson & Johnson has faced over 40,000 lawsuits from people alleging that its baby powder causes cancers like ovarian cancer and uh, mesothelioma due to asbestos contamination. Um, however, Johnson & Johnson has maintained that the baby powder is safe, despite allegations of the company having covered up asbestos investigations since the 1970s, as well as unethical marketing practices which have targeted um, black communities and I believe Hispanic communities as well. So Johnson & Johnson took its baby powder off, off of shelves in 2020, saying that, misinfor saying that misinformation had slashed demand for the product. And then last year, it announced plans to end global sales as well. Um, the company has been selling the baby powder for almost 130 years. Now, the company is, does still sell the baby powder, but it sells a cornstarch-based version of it. So of the uh, so Johnson and Johnson um, has faced forty one telc lawsuits and has won thirty two of them through mistrials or plaintiff verdicts that were reversed after an appeal. Um, and recently, the most significant loss I would say was from was against a group of twenty two women who were awarded two point one billion dollars in settlements, and that amount was reduced from four point six nine billion after Johnson and Johnson. Uh, put forth appeals. Um, Johnson & Johnson is not ready to pay this $2.1 billion um, as it uh, plans to appeal the case at the Supreme Court. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, Beasley Allen and Ashcroft, Ashcroft and Gerald, which is the plaintiff group that's criticized Johnson & Johnson's bankruptcy, um, uh, st strategic bankruptcy, uh, moves and also again says that it's 8.9 billion dollar offer may sound like a lot of money but it's not enough when you consider the terms of the proposal the settlement proposal they say would pay far less than $120,000 per case if that even uh, they said that the costs of medical care and lost wages for ovarian cancer victims can be up to $500,000 and also it doesn't address the pain and suffering um, of those women and their their families, um, what they've suffered by Johnson and Johnson's massive and deliberate cover up of the dangers of its asbestos laden talc products, um, and this was in a statement that they released uh, right after Johnson and Johnson put forth its latest offer. So, I just wanted to get your thoughts on this uh, new offer and uh it just seems never ending it actually is never ending but uh, there are also um, other big pharma companies that have gone through similar kinds of things uh facing massive um settlements or having offered massive settlements for example um i think there is um bayer which uh actually paid out 10 billion dollars to settle a roundup deal and uh, yeah, so it's uh, it's not completely unheard of, but of course Johnson and Johnson has been in the limelight for a while now over its baby powder. So I just want to get your thoughts on on this, and uh, do you see an end to this anytime soon? 
Well, I think it's in everyone's best interest to finish this as soon as possible, right? Because, um, I, I mean, the, the victims of this, they are looking to, um, I assume they want this to be settled as soon as possible in the most fairest way, right? And I assume that's what Johnson & Johnson wants, at least that's what they should want. Um, but I was just curious, I was looking at Johnson's & Johnson's um, annual report from last year. So in 2022, their net earnings were about $17.9 billion, mm-hmm. right, per year. Um, so I don't think that $8.9 billion over but the span of... they can't afford it? <laughs> yeah, I don't think $8.9 billion over the span of 25 years is going to, like, destroy their company. I mean, their image, their reputation is a little... Tar- it is tarnished, for sure, from this scandal. Um, but this is not, like they are going to go bankrupt and the company's going to have to close or they're going to have, you know, this mm-hmm. is completely doable for them, in my opinion, because those are net earnings, right? That's that's not like total revenue. It's completely different. So yeah. last yeah. year, if, if they did make $18 billion almost, I think that this is completely doable, this um, lawsuit that they have to pay out. Yeah, their sales numbers, and I was looking up the same thing, Vera, mm-hmm. in 2022, uh, hit $95 billion. So mm-hmm. as you say, that's that's <laughs> not the take-home amount, right? But I, yeah. uh, that is the point I was going to make as well. It just seems like this would still be like pretty much a drop in the bucket. I mm-hmm. think probably their biggest mm-hmm. concern um, is like precedence. So it, you know, the more cases that are won, the more that can be pointed to in court and say, um, you know, here's what happened in this case. Like, here's why you should rule in our favor in this case. And so, um, Aisha, I think you said they've actually won the majority of the, the cases that have come against them for that, this talc that lawsuit. That was surprising so, to me. Yeah. 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 So, um, I mean, I'm sure there's various things that happen with those cases, but, and I think the other thing is also just the, um, like damage reduction probably to their brand as well, which obviously some damage has been done um, in terms of, you know, trustworthiness, but like you still see they're mm-hmm. such a giant company. All of their things are still still on the shelves. Uh, and, and I think what makes this so interesting is that um, when I had first heard about it, I assumed that the asbestos was like a contaminant in the talc that mm-hmm. was... I don't know. I thought it was like a, a contaminant that got in there, you know, during the um, processing, manu- or processing yeah. yeah, and manufacturing of the baby <laughs> powder itself. But it's actually like a naturally occurring yep. contaminant. And so not to not to take any of the blame, you know, off J- Johnson & Johnson, but what's been alleged is that they, they, they knew, knew this. They knew about this since the 70s. Since apparently. the 70s. And they yep. had the reports saying, you know, uh-oh, the asbestos levels are over the, the acceptable mm-hmm. amount. Out and but they continue to sell the product and not just sell it, um, but target, uh, you know, largely yeah. uh, communities of Black women and things like that. So there's like extra levels here of, mm-hmm. you know, accountability. Uh, and then the other thing I wanted to uh, say is I didn't realize that there was this. Texas two-step bankruptcy strategy yeah. that companies could take advantage of to just Texas straight up two-step. like push <laughs> push the um, the lawsuits over to a subsidiary a subsidiary know. that then they just so file for for bankruptcy. Like I'm glad that that was blocked. 
That is so sketchy. Yeah. And how is that even like, how is that even a thing that could be leveraged? Yeah. Yeah. I think that um, it brought to mind something that happened in uh, in 2017 with Allergan uh, when mm. they transferred a patent they had for um, its dry eye drug, Restasis, mm -hmm. to the uh, St. Regis Mohawk tribe from upstate New York. And so they said what they were going to do is... Um, Basically, yeah, transfer the, the patent to this uh, First Nations tribe. They'd pay the tribe $13.75 million to do this. And in exchange, um, the tribe was going to claim something called sovereign immunity uh, to basically block any patent challenges on, on Restasis because it's such a, a blockbuster drug for Allergan that was coming up on mm -hmm. its patent expiry date. And so they just wanted to kind of stop or at least delay any patent challenges uh, to to that dry eye drug and so yeah they said listen we're gonna we're gonna give it we're gonna pay this tribe basically to take this patent on um, and then they could use the sovereign immunity thing to say nope no one can uh, yeah no no one can no one can come up with a, a, a challenger kind of product um, and that definitely failed for them oh and was <laughs> just as shady like it's just so mm -hmm. you can see right through it right so yeah yeah I mean I, we're not lawyers but it's it's <sighs> incredible to see the little like loopholes that companies mm. will try to exploit you know to kind of uh maintain their bottom line I just think it obviously does nothing for their credibility and does nothing <laughs> for the um the general perception in the public of, you know, quote unquote, big pharma and they're yeah, not to be trusted and things right. like that. Just like not great for the public image nope. of the, the industry as a whole. Definitely that, Sarah, that's unbelievable. We were talking about Allergan and what they were doing with it. Oh my gosh. It's hmm. um, like, yeah, you can see right through it, but like, a lot of these companies, they just won't hesitate, even with their reputation on the line and, and everything. It's it's mind-boggling. I guess they're just so big that they're confident that they'll ride through the storm. And also that public memory is pretty short. So mm -hmm. I think they're mm -hmm. relying on, on all of that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, just bullying their way through and trying to get whatever they want. It's... And that's a great point that it really does no favors to kind of the overall rep reputation that big pharma often uh, is subjected to and kind of is criticized for, for in terms of just like, you know, being all of the, about the money. And uh, but we hope that's not the case uh, for every company. But yeah, we'll see what happens with Johnson and Johnson um, and where things go. All right, that's the end of this episode of the X Talks Life Science Podcast. If you liked today's show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks, everyone, and see you next week. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to the X Talks Life Science Podcast. If you enjoyed our discussions today, please share the episode with your friends and colleagues, and be sure to subscribe in order to be notified when a new episode is released. To join in on the discussion, you can find X Talks on social media, email podcast at xtalks.com, or comment on the articles directly. Links are in the show description. 
take a moment to join our community at xtalks.com to get access to everything we have to offer, including webinars, job listings, virtual meetings, articles, and more. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers sharing them. They should not be taken as professional advice and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position Honeycomb Worldwide. For further information, email us at podcast at xtalks.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.